This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You have to choose your pathway of suffering. That's one way of thinking about it. And you can choose the suffering that's associated with deceit and arrogance and resentment and bitterness, or you can choose the suffering that's associated with truth. And the thing about the suffering that's associated with truth is that that transcends the suffering. It starts to make things better. And and it's real. It's real. Deceit makes life worse, and truth makes it better. There's chaos to confront. There's order to reestablish. And the world would be a lesser place if you didn't do it. So give me an example of like, let's say someone's listening to this and they say to themselves, you know what, I I went to school, I went to graduate school, I've been at this job for 20 years. I'm kind of have this simmering, chronic, low depression. And you've dealt with depression, so you understand the various spectrums and levels I'm talking about. What do you say to that person who wants an injection of a little bit of chaos, a little bit outside their comfort zone? What's something to practice maybe? I've got Jordan Peterson in the house. Jordan, I've seen you everywhere. You've you're you're a titan in Tools of the Titans. You're you're uh, uh, I've been on Joe Rogan's show. You you have a new book, uh, The Twelve Rules of Life. Uh, let me make sure I got the title right. Twelve Rules for Life. And uh, I don't want to say you're like a professor at Toronto, a professor at University of Toronto, because that's so much. I don't. I hate to use the word smaller than what you are, but like you you have tens of millions of views on your YouTube channel. Your lectures are super popular. You've also been extremely controversial for, again, what I think are smaller issues than what we're going to be talking about here, the 12 rules for life. I almost think it's weird that it was so controversial you've been over these issues, but that's how you kind of first got known. Um, But I also think, and this is a long way of doing an intro, I also think you live like the ideal life. Like you think about things and people pay attention to them and you get paid for it. What yeah, could it's be, pretty weird. What could be a be- what could be a better life? And and also, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you one thing that's better than that. It's something that's been happening to me a lot, uh, more and more, and really happened a lot when I went to London. It was most most obvious there. I would say so far is that now when I go places, so I went to London and um, my wife and I went out to a grocery store the first day we were there to pick up a few groceries and and uh, so we went to a grocery store and this young guy came up and he said, I've been watching your videos for like the last year or so. I've watched like hundreds of hours of them and um, it's really helped me straighten my life out and put it together and things are way better for me. Thank you. It's like, yeah, hey, great. You know, that's wonderful. And then I went to the electronics store next door to get a little plug for my computer and young guy came up and said, I've been watching your videos for the last year and like things are way better for me and wherever I go now, there's people come up and that's what they say. And imagine, imagine, so this is a situation. So imagine you could, you could, you could have what you wanted if you went traveling. You could just conjure it up. You might think, well, I'd like people to come up and say that the things that I've been doing have been extremely helpful to them and, and that they've made their lives better and they would just do that wherever you went. And so that's what's happening. There's nothing better than that. That's ridiculously good. Well, let me ask you about that because, uh, and and there's, there's many layers here. Like I want to talk about your... 12 Rules for Life book. It's it, As we're recording this, it just came out and I think it's a, a fascinating book and an important book. Um, and I also want to get a little more into your background. 
But two things I want to unpack from what you just said, and I apologize if I interrupt too much. But uh, no, it's it's something I'm very prone to. So we'll have a little competition. All right, see good. who does it more. So so what were the th- and then I also want to hit your controversies. But what were the things that you think you said to them that helped their life? Because ultimately, there probably was nothing you actually. I believe there's nothing you actually said to them that they they were probably ready for some message and they heard that message on. Your videos yeah. and then they acted. But what do you think that message or mess set of messages were that actually helped those people who are coming up to you? Um, how would you boil it down? Um, there's chaos to confront. There's order to reestablish. And there's, what's the last one? I had a nice formulation of it this morning. Well, that's a good start. That's a good start. And you mentioned chaos and order in your yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's start with those. Because oh, and the world would be a lesser place if you didn't do it. Okay, those so, are good things for people to know. Right. So, so your point, your point is, correct me if I'm wrong. If you just live the ordered, standard life that society and uh, tells you to live, yeah. that would be a boring and maybe not useful life. Well, it's it's good. It's better than not doing that. You know, I mean, it, it's good to it's good to be disciplined. It's good to be. It's even good to conform. It's not as good as the alternative, which is to conform and to push at the same time. So, give me give me an example of like, let's say, uh, let's say someone's listening to this and they say to themselves, you know what, I I went to school, I went to graduate school, I've been at this job for twenty years, I'm kind of have this simmering, chronic low depression and yep. you've dealt with depression so yep. you understand the various spectrums and levels i'm talking about what do you say to that person who wants an injection of a little bit of chaos a little bit outside their comfort zone what's something to practice maybe well the first thing to practice is i would say i'm not trying to evade the question either is to figure out what you should practice you might say well let's get in touch with your dissatisfaction it's like something isn't quite right in your life so that means you're probably resentful about it. You're probably angry about it. You're upset by it. You're bored about it. Something like that. So what is it? What what do you find unsettling? And then even hypothetically, what might a what might the antidote to that look like? If you could have what you wanted, what would it look like? Well, that's extremely useful. And then, well, then you can start thinking about what you could practice. I mean, I think a lot of people might be out of touch, though. With, like like you even recommend in in your book. First thing, or one of the first things, is take stock of your life. Mm. What do you believe in? Who are you? Mm. What's going on? Mm. And I think that's something that's very attractive. Like when I read that, I think to myself, "Oh, I want to take out my list and take stock of my life. Like this is what I believe in. Yep. This is who I am." But it's 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 hard because there's deeper and deeper levels. I think a lot yep. of people don't know how to answer that question. Yeah. Well, I think you can start. You can, and I, I do outline this in the book to some degree. Is a lot of this you can start small with, right? It's like there's some things around you. There's there, here's a couple of things that are happening for sure. There are things that you are saying that you know you shouldn't say, so you could just stop saying them. And some of those are things you could just stop. So there are things you are saying that you know not to be true, and you could stop saying them. That's unbelievably useful. Like like what's an example for the typical person? What's a what's a stereotypical example? Oh, maybe you're saying things to please your wife that you don't mean. Maybe you're saying things to your friends to make them like you. Maybe you're saying things to your boss to smooth things over. And you know that they're they're just they're just not you. And so it's funny. So they're in a weird way they add up. Like you might ha- you might be able to rationalize, well, I have to say this to my wife or I have to say this to my boss, but across everybody, uh, they add up. Well, and across time. 
Right. That's the thing is that lot, the reason that people generally say things that they don't mean is so that they gain a short-term advantage, which is they don't, there's no conflict, for example. I'll say what you want to hear. Then we don't have to have conflict. Well, that's fine. That'd be a fine solution if it worked across time, but it doesn't. It takes you down. And, you know, a thousand decisions like that hurt you a lot. And each of the decisions can just be a little decision. You don't say what you want to your kids. You don't say what you want to your wife. You don't say what you want to you. Then you don't even know what you want. Well, then what? Because, you see, there's a real problem with this. And and this is the fundamental problem. I, I tried to lay out the the phenomenological landscape of, of humanity in this book. What's phenomenological? Well, yeah. yeah, well, it's life as experienced. You know, you think, well, what's reality? Well, there's material reality, but that isn't really the reality you live. You live a reality that's full of emotions and motivations and, 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 and personal experiences. That's your reality. And I would say, well, what's the structure of that reality? What's the fundamental structure of the human lived reality? And it's something like, well, suffering, that's part of it because we're finite and limited, but it's suffering that's tainted with malevolence because some of that suffering is unnecessary. You cause it, society causes it. It doesn't have to happen. That's the world we live in. It's harsh and it's cruel. It's like, okay, so you're stuck with that. That's the bottom line. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, if you deal with it badly, let's say by lying, by not getting what you want, then you're going to suffer and it's going to be brutal. And there's nothing in that that's good. Not but only even if you tell gonna, the truth, you're going to suffer. Well, but that that's where things see. That's where things get. That's where things get strange. It's like you have to choose your pathway of suffering. That's one way of thinking about it. And you can choose the suffering that's associated with deceit and arrogance and resentment and bitterness, or you can choose the suffering that's associated with truth. And the thing about the suffering that's associated with truth is that that transcends the suffering. It starts to make things better, and and it's real. It's real. Like deceit makes life worse, especially the malevolent part of it, and truth makes it better. So I I agree with you, but let's look at at, at and I'll I'll tell you why I agree with you. But yep. let's first uh, look at examples from your own life. So so you you I don't I, I forget what year this was, but when uh, in where you were teaching or in Canada, they everybody started using uh, transgender pronouns. And this was one of the first controversies you were involved in. You were basically... Uh, they made it law that you had to use them. Right. Yeah. And, and you were basically saying, oh, I'm going to stick with he and she and what you were comfortable with and what you felt was true to you. Well, it and, was it was deeper than that, I would say. The fact that it was about transgender pro t- pronouns was just, a, was just a sideshow in some sense. The government decided that it was okay to compel speech. Now, they had their reasons. They said, well, we need to bolster the identity of these people who've been oppressed. We're going to tell you how you have to address them. It's like, no, you're not. You're not going to tell me how to use my language. And that's that. I don't care what your goddamn excuse is. That's not happening. Now, and then people said, well, you must be transphobic. You must be racist. There's all these things that I must be. It's like, no, I'm just not letting anybody mess around with my words because they're mine. I live by them. I put my soul into them. No one's playing around with them. And so that's what caused the controversy. And the controversy was, well, it was twofold. One was, well, maybe this professor is this horrible racist and we should find that out. And fair enough, you know. And uh, maybe he's crazy because he's, or, or he's an extremist because he's criticizing a Canadian piece of legislation and Canada is a pretty stable state, so we better find that out. But, but, but there was one, another thing, there was something else to it too, which was, well, maybe I'm just not letting people put words in my mouth because there's nothing, there's no way I'm letting that happen. 
I know what happens when that starts to happen. And it's not good. So I'm not going there. And I think the reason it was controversial is because I actually said no. And I meant it. But did you feel pain when the controversy was... I mean, at some points, everyone's attacking you, right? And it's somebody... Let's say a thousand people are attacking you for something. Somebody's going to randomly hit a button goes back to you being three years old and your mom yelling at you yeah, just yeah. randomly. So it must have, some parts must have been extremely painful of that controversy. So the things that people were saying about you, the things that people were accusing you of, things people yeah, were well, probably lying sense, about. If you have any sense, when a thousand people go after you and they accuse you of things, you start thinking, well, you know, it's possible some of those things are true. And probably some of them are true because like you're no saint. So how do you, so, how do you deal with that? Oh, well... I mean, I'd thought through what I said very carefully and I'd thought it through, I would say for decades and I'd thought it through as far down as I could think it through. And that actually happens to be a fair ways down. And then I also had my family around me and my friends. And so when I was going through this, I'd talk to them. I said, well, look, here's what I said. This is why I said it. Like, here's how I said it. This is what people are saying. What do you think about that? And they'd say, well, you know, I think you got this part of it right and you were a little bit too angry there and, you know, maybe a bit flippant there. And like, so you got to modify that. And so we were we were feeling our way through it very, very carefully. But I'd also thought through the consequences. Like, I know, I've taught people to negotiate in very difficult situations. The first thing that you have to do if you're going to negotiate is to be able to say no. You can't negotiate with anyone unless you can say no. And no means I'm not doing this. And it also means I've thought through what you could do to me to get me to do this. And I'm willing not to do any of those and to take the the penalty that goes along with that. And so if you're willing to do that, then, well, then you can't be moved. And I think the reason this became a spectacle, let's say, is because I said, here's something I'm not moving about. And I meant it. And I actually meant it. So because I'm not, I know what happens when the government starts enforcing its requirements for speech. And it's not good. Like I've studied that. I studied that intently for decades. I've been lecturing about it for decades, about right-wing fascism and about left-wing authoritarianism. So I understand how, how those things unfold. And part of that is because, part of that is the corruption of individual speech. Do you think this happens all the time in society? I mean, essentially, I feel like there's language and then there's allowable language. So in every few years, it sort of changes depending on what the topic of the year is, like whether it's Republicans versus Democrats in the U.S. or whether it's, um, you know, Harvey Weinstein versus a guy who smiles at you at work and they get somehow conflated together. Do you think society is constantly trying to restrict the language of its members I th- or I think, beliefs? I think that taboos move around. They never disappear because taboos are part of the difference between everything jumbles together if there are no taboos and that's just not tenable, but they move around. I think that there is always a battle about what people are allowed to say, partly because people are interested in control, they're interested in tyranny, and they're also often afraid of the truth. So if they can have inconvenient truths not uttered, well, that makes life simpler hypothetically, well, of course and, it and doesn't. You, but. And, and you put it nicely in, in, in your book that people need to kind of, and, and you've said this in other places, people need to kind of clean up their own house before trying to change the world. People should make their own bed, for instance, before going out there. Yeah, and- well, that, that's a rough chapter. That's chapter six. It's set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And in that chapter, I write about 
one of those topics that no one wants to talk about. I wrote about the Columbine kids and, and the high school shooters. I understand those people. I wrote about um, Carl Panzram, who was one of the 20th century's arch criminals who wrote an autobiography explaining exactly why all he did was distribute murder and rape and mayhem wherever he went. He had his reasons and arson. He had his reasons. They right. were good reasons. Right, and you, like even with the Columbine guys, you yeah. describe them as they basically had their core system of beliefs. Yeah. They took stock in themselves, you know, and they had a core system of beliefs that led them to do what they yeah. do. So they believed that being, so we talked already about the fact that human existence is limited and tragic and 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 tainted by malevolence it's like and they felt that that was unreasonable it's like those those conditions of existence are unreasonable so i'm going to take revenge against it revenge against god is what it is essentially in the final analysis it doesn't matter whether you believe in god or not but that's what it is is they looked and they say this it's not like i'm inferring it all you have to do is read what they right. wrote they said look i looked at the structure of human existence and found it wanting and in my estimation, it should be eradicated. And if it can be eradicated painfully, so much the better. And to top it all off, after I engage in some eradication, I'll do myself in just to show how little I care. It's like there's a satanic impulse behind that. It's so, the only way to describe it. Right, and again, I, I feel like, you know, just like the, there's sort of the good and the bad of somebody co coming up to you and saying, uh, thank you, professor, you've, you've changed my life. And because one of those kids, one of those people who come up to you could be a Columbine shooter. And because they could take from your work, okay, this is my core belief and I've cleaned up my room and this is what I believe and I'm going to now act on it. Mm -hmm. um, because Except I don't, know I don't what... think that's where you get if you clean up your room. So, you know, that's the other thing about chapter six. It's like, well, what's the alternative? I know why people think that way. They have their reasons. Life is, can be unbearable. There are plenty of things to be resentful and angry about. And you could even make the case. I just debated with this guy who calls himself an antinatalist. He's a philosopher in, in South Africa. And he wrote a book. I think the book was called Better Not To Be, something like that. But his claim is that conscious existence is so, so, so painful and so, so brutal that we should not work for its furtherance. We should end sentience. We shouldn't have children. It's wrong to bring children into the world. Why? Because they suffer too much. And that's a powerful argument. Same argument that Ivan Karamazov uses against his novitiate brother in the Brothers Karamazov. It's like, what kind of God would produce a world where the suffering is this intense? It's like, that's a good argument. Well, what do you do in the face of an argument like that? I said, well, if things are so bad for you that you can barely tolerate them, do everything you can to make them better before you complain. Because maybe you're wrong. Maybe you just haven't put yourself together enough. It's like, well, maybe, may, and I, and you and you suggest take the take the small. If if you can't figure it out, go smaller. Take yep. the smaller steps. So, yep. but some people don't know. It sometimes you have to get into that practice of taking that first small step. They don't know how to do that. Oh, they and, do. They also don't know, in some sense, that it's even possible. I mean, right? Because they've been beaten down so much. Like, yeah, or they at, maybe they never had a good example. Right, even one. Like look at look at look at kids who grow up, let's say, in juvenile detention. Yeah. And they're raped repeatedly throughout yeah. the entire fifteen years they're there. Yeah. That's Carl Panzram. And and yeah, so so that all they've seen is is uh, the worst horrible form yeah. of, of life what life has to offer. I have and, a friend like that. I have a friend like that. That's exactly what happened to him. And he had a terrible time of it. He was brutalized horribly from the time he was his life his story life story is unbearable. He was brutalized terribly from the time he was 
five. He had measles, small po- or measles, chicken pox, and mumps at the same time. He's a Native American guy. And then he was in the hospital when he was about five. He just about died. And lots of his people did die because of such things. And then when he got out of the hospital, he wasn't, he wasn't an English language speaker. He spoke his, his native tongue. He was waiting for his grandparents on the dock. They were going to come and take him back to, to where he lived. And instead, the bus picked him up, took him to a residential school in Canada. And it was one of the horror show residential schools. And he was like brutalized for like eight years. He couldn't even speak the language. And he just had a terrible time of it. Like he was just tortured, starved, you name it. And when he came out, he was just a mess. He said he didn't know which way was up. He didn't know if it was male or female. He didn't know anything. And he half did himself in with drugs and alcohol. But he put himself together when he was about 40, 35, started mm. to carve and became a very good artist. And he's put his life together a lot. So, you know, even people who've had those terrible experiences, they, they can come out of it. And he's something, man. He's he's a deep guy. So so they so I think in some cases you're right. They can come out of it. Yep. In some cases they can't. Yeah. And and not even the ones who are brutalized from early on. Sometimes people just fall apart midlife. Yeah. And they say, oh my gosh, nothing nothing good is ever going to happen to me because you're right. Life it's not just let's even let's even make it milder. It's not just that life is suffering with malevolence. It's just life is hard every, and it's every single day. <laughs> like it never yes, ends. Well, we could add that to it too. And it's grinding. It grinds it, away at you as right, well. Yeah. Right, which is oh, the sure. chronic low level, like I got to get up. I got to, the boss is going to yell at me. Yep. I got to take care of the kids. Yep. I don't love my wife or husband or whatever. Yep. So what, again, a lot of these people, if you say to them, well, no, you can change things. Just start yep. making your bed better or whatever. They're going to say, no, no. They, the initial reaction is to defend. No, no. They're going to defend their limitations. You know, there's that saying, if you defend your limitations, then they're yours. Well, they, they don't generally, if you don't get accusatory. Like, so if I'm working with someone in, in my clinical practice, I certainly don't say, well, look, your life is miserable and it's your fault. It's like, I don't start with that at all. It's like, it's no bloody wonder your life is miserable. It's amazing that it isn't like that all the time for everyone, but but it's not the way you want it. So let's see if we can jointly discover ways that you can put things together. And then it's a matter of very, very careful problem solving. So what's a, what's an example where you helped? Where, and again, not just from the, I mean, there's two problems. There, there's two examples of problem solving. One is there's the people you don't know. So there's the periphery people who they watch your YouTube videos and they indirectly received help from what you said. They started their own problem solving and you changed their life and they came up to you and said that. Then there's the uh, uh, people you you see in your clinical practice where you're able to really put your ideas in practice yeah. and help people. So so again, what what what's a specific example where you've helped someone where it seemed inconceivable to them that they could be helped? And then what do you suspect also help these people on the periphery? Well, if you're if you're trying to help someone who's in a rough situation, well, let's say you're trying to help them with their relationship, you might say, you ask them to start watching themselves so that you can gather some information. So that they call that collaborative empiricism. That's a behavioral psychology technique. It's okay, let's take a look at your relationship for a week. And all you have to do is figure out when it's working and when it's not working. Just keep track of that for a while. Or when it's working horribly and when it's working just not too bad. Maybe it never gets to good. Let's start distinguishing between those two things so that we have some some real sense of what happens when things are not good. Well, my wife ignores me at the dinner table or my wife ignores me when I come home or all we'd ever do is fight or something like that. We think, well... I think you just described all my marriages. <laughs> well, then, then we start slow, small. It's like, well... Um, 
How would you like it? How would you like your wife to greet you when you come home? Well, I'd like I'd like her to stop what she's doing and come to the door. It's like, well, ask her under what conditions she'd be willing to do that and let her do it badly. It's like, say, look, like we're not getting along so well. And I got this idea. Maybe if one little thing we could do is just change the way we greet each other when we come home. You're watching TV. I'm watching TV. We walk into the house. Neither of us pays any attention. It's just, it's not good. So let's let's try this for a week. Because you make it small, right? Let's try it for a week. When one of us comes home, just shut the TV off and say, like, how was your day? And listen for 10 seconds, something like that. Let's see how that goes. And like, you can, you if you're willing, Carl Jung said something very interesting that I really liked. He said that modern people can't see God because they won't look low enough. I really like that. And this is, this, this is, this is a concretization of that. It's like- Tell me what that means. It means that people underestimate the importance of small things. They're not small. How, you, how your wife says hi to you when you come home, it's not small because you come home all the time. Like how does you, what does your dog do when you come home? It's like, it's happy, man. Comes to the door, it greets you, it wags its tail. It's like, hey, and you're happy. It's like, there's my dog. It's so happy to see me. But it, and you think that's not such a big deal. It's, it's just you coming home. It's no, you come home three times a day. So we could do the arithmetic. Let's say, let's say you spend 15 minutes a day coming home, something like that. And then it's every day. So that's seven days a week. So that's 70, 105 minutes. So let's call it 90 minutes for the sake of the arithmetic, 90 minutes a week. So that's four, six hours a month, 72 hours a week, uh, 72 hours a year. So you basically spend two, eight, uh, two 40 hour work weeks a year coming home. That's roughly 25, let's see, that's 1 25th of your total time. It's about 3% of your life. You spend about 3% of your life coming home. Fix it. And you know, it's interesting because- And then is, fix 30 more things. This is the second time, right. So this is the second time you brought up the fact that it's not any one moment or any one thought. It's the fact that these things add up and that, and then that becomes your life. Well, and you just said too, when, when we were talking about this, you said, well, it isn't just that life is tragic and, and, miserable, and miserable and malevolent. It's that it grinds away at you. Yeah, it grinds away at you 50 different ways. Okay, fix them. Fix them. Like here, here's an example. Let's say this happens to couples a lot. Um, they don't sort out their their food preparation arrangements. So neither of them really take responsibility for it. The husband is aggravated and irritated because he feels he works enough and it's not really his job in the kitchen. It's sort of a feminine role. He feels sort of demeaned by it. He doesn't really know how to cook anyways. And the wife thinks, to hell with it. I'm not doing this because like it's a traditional role and I'm just being oppressed and... Um, and so, fine, so then what? Well, so no one really buys groceries properly, or if they do, they buy second-rate food. And then no one really cooks, and if they do, they serve it cold, badly prepared, and in a hostile environment. It's like, fine, except that's six hours a day. Okay, so that's 42 hours a week, or 160 hours a month. It's like, that's four... It's 10% of your life is yeah. misery. It's like, fix it. So then you think, well, how would I like the food to be prepared? Well, let's say... It's good nourishing food served by someone who's pleased to prepare it to, to people who are happy to receive it. That would be nice. It's like, say thank you for Christ's sake when someone makes you something to eat and mean it. And don't whine about having to cook in the kitchen because someone has to do it and you should get your act together so you can do it with some joy. It's like, really, 40 things like that and your life is fixed. But they're all, they're all the trivial things that we do day to day. It's like the things you do day to day are not trivial. Your holiday, that's trivial. Your adventure, that's trivial. Your mealtime, that's your damn life. So get it together. 
You think, well, what else? Well, there's no romance in my life. It's like, okay, when was the last time you took your wife out to a movie, to a date? We don't date. Why not? Well, we did that when we were first going out. You know, we got married. We don't have to date now. It's like, really? So that's what you're going to tell me. You don't want any romance in your life. That's your solution. So, so then I get a, maybe I get the couple to agree to go out on a date. They're not happy about it because it's like, well, this dating is just stupid. It's and like, they're out of practice. Really and they're out of practice. Maybe they were never any good at it. Plus, they don't like each other very much. So they go out on a date and then they both come in and maybe they talk to me and they say, well, we took your advice and it didn't go very well. I think, so that's your solution, is it? You're going to come back here and you had one miserable date. You're both really bad at it. And now you're going to throw it in my face and say, that sucked, you're stupid, and there's no solution to this problem. Ha, we win. It's like, that's what you want for the rest of your life, eh? It's like, go on 40 dates and know that you're both idiots, you know, just like everybody else, and that maybe you could get half decent at it. So by the 20th date, it's kind of enjoyable some of the time. And then maybe by the 40th date, you're not so bad at it. And then you have it for the rest of your life. It's like, yeah, that's something worth aiming at. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I would say doing a podcast is the activity that I've enjoyed most in these past few years. I've interviewed so many fascinating people. I've researched so hard each guest, and I've really wanted to bring the highest quality information about peak performance, really, to the listeners. So I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And it will it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and then it's worth listening to. And it'll help us keep doing this. And I, I want to keep doing this and I want to make it more and more valuable. And if you ever want to ask me for, you know, you want to see a certain guest or if you have an idea, tweet me at, at Jay Altucher and I'll, you know, listen and I'll try to respond to everything. Thank you for listening. And I can't wait for you to listen to the, some of the upcoming guests I have. They're super exciting. I'm really excited about them. And again, don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcast. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. In these examples, you assume that people are married. You've been married forever. Many people can't find uh, a, a spouse or they say, oh, there's no one out there for me or I don't know how to meet people. Well, there isn't. And there's certainly no one good out there for you yeah. because if there's someone good out there, they're going to take one look at you and run. It's like, so, you know. Particularly me. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not particularly, but. but, but I mean, uh, so what would you say to that person? I mean, I'm, I'm now I'm just like throwing like life problems at yeah. you and seeing what you say. <laughs> yeah, well, I, the first thing I would do is ask for the specifics. You know, it's like, okay, so we'd go over your relationships and say, well, Tell me about a relationship you had that worked for a while. I don't care. It might be a brother, a sister, could be a child, could be a parent, could be a lover, whatever. Tell me about something that worked. And then tell me about something that didn't work. And then let's see if we can figure out why the thing that worked worked and why the thing that didn't didn't. And that gives us a, a starting point, right? We want to do a careful analysis and then think, well, and then what do you want from a relationship? And where do you think the pitfalls are? And and we talk a little bit about the traditional element of a relationship too. It's like, well, you know, it's not easy to have a marriage if if you're not staying within the bounds of the tradition to some degree. 
mostly when men and women get married, one of the things that sustains them is having children. Because it's like, well, what else are you going to do together? Well, not have children. Okay, fine. But like, what's your alternative plan? You need a, you need a joint venture. You know, because in a marriage, there's a domestic issue. It's like, how the hell are you going to get along in the household? There's a business issue. How are you going to integrate your economic life and your productive life? There's a romantic issue. There's an adventure issue. All those things have to be thought through and, and sorted out. And then with any luck, you can, and there's a spiritual element too. And of course, these, with it, communication. It, it's so funny because it sounds like these are also important as an individual. There's a spiritual issue. There's a oh, yeah. romantic issue. There's a business issue. You know, all these things have to be dealt with as individuals as well. Well, one of the things we've developed, I did this with my colleagues, uh, Daniel Higgins and, and Robert Peel were the two uh, co-constructors. Co, uh, uh, Daniel's been working on this for like 15 years before he made, worked on it for 15 years before we made any money on it. But we put together this program called self-authoring. And what self-authoring does, it's a, it's a practical life improvement program. So the first thing it asks you is, okay, um, imagine you're going to treat yourself like you were someone worth caring for. That's hard, man. But just imagine that for a minute. So imagine you like yourself and that you would do something for yourself so that your life wasn't as miserable as it, as it could be. You know, just that. Um, all right, so now let's, let's take stock. It's, and so um, if you could educate yourself the way you think would be useful, what would that look like? Um, well, what, what does your career look like three to five years down the road? Um, what about your friends? How do you want them to treat you? Uh, intimate relationship, children, time you spend outside of work. Um, what about temptations like drugs and alcohol, for example? Like, what's your attitude to that? You want to, you know, drink six drinks a night or 10 drinks a night and degenerate into cirrhosis in 10 years? Or do you want to have a couple of social drinks? Or like, what's your plan? How are you going to regulate that? Because that's a, that's a pitfall that people often fall into. So, Right, because again, it's, it's the thinking short-term versus long-term. So one drink doesn't kill you. Um, but well, it might even be good. And yeah. you know, maybe maybe having five drinks on the weekend with your friends is fine. But like, like let's have a plan about it here. But but also you have to consider if you do six years of five drinks a night. Yeah, right. You know, then there's like everything you could kind of look at. Like, well, what does this look like if it if it's ongoing and that's chronic? right. If it iterates, yeah. Well, yeah. That, that the iteratability is a real issue, and and that that's something we can return to. So he said, okay, well, so just just sketch out what that might look like if you could have what you wanted. Don't get too picky about it and don't assume that that's what's going to happen don't get too self-critical about your choices make a bad plan that's a good start then the next, i like to make a bad plan make a bad plan man you can do that and so in, in in sorry to interrupt yeah in in chess so i'm a competitive chess player in chess there's a saying a bad plan is better than no plan at all mm. it's very very it's important you learn from skill it. to learn yeah if you make a bad plan and you implement it then you make mistakes and you learn from the mistakes so a bad plan successfully implemented is self-improving and you can make a bad plan anybody can do that it's way better than no plan so that's rule one a bad plan is better than no plan that's a good one man okay so now the next thing we have you do in this exercise is okay now look it's three to five years down into the future and you have what you need and want what does that look like assuming you're taking care of yourself this isn't some pie in the sky dream it's like you're a real person this is a real plan it's a real vision. You get to have what, what would make your life justifiable to you, That what would justify your life to you. Well, what does that look like, even in principle? Okay, sketch that out. Fine, you got 15 minutes. Sketch it out. Make all the mistakes you want. Don't worry about it. Just sketch it out. Then we do the next thing, which is, all right, now, you know your weaknesses and your characterological flaws and your, and your susceptibility to temptation and your resentment, your bitterness. Okay, that takes the upper hand and augurs you in. 
you're in hell in three years. What does it look like? Well, everyone knows that. So they write that down. They go, oh my God. Yeah, oh yes, that would happen. Yeah. And so they make this. So now you've got two visions. You got a little vision of heaven. You got a little vision of hell. Now you can run away from the vision of hell and you can run towards the vision of heaven. You've got some motivation. Well, that works like a charm. We've been doing that with university students and it increases the probability that they'll stay in university about 35%, 30 to 35%. And it really works for the guys in particular because it works better on men. Um, It really works for the guys who are doing the worst. It's like, make a plan, make a plan. Because they have a societal pressure more, I think, to, to have a plan. Well, I think I think they have the luxury of not having to have a plan. Like, you know, if you're if you're a guy and you haven't got going by the time you're 40, it's like, well, you're probably screwed, but not for sure. You could still have a career, you could still have a family. If you're a woman and you haven't got going by the time mm. you're 40, it's like no family for you. The pressure's on if you're female to you, you gotta get yourself together by the time you're 35 because you're just you run out of options. Mm. With guys, it can be so they have the luxury of of less necessity, but they also have the pathology that goes along with it. So, so I think guys are more likely to not grow up, but it's also that in our culture, we've got this terrible confusion between tyranny, male power slash tyranny and male competence. And the radical, especially on the radical left wing, point their finger at men and say, you're a tyrant. It's like failing to distinguish between competence and tyranny. And then when any competence manifests itself, they crush it out like it's tyranny. That's not helpful, not in the least. So let me ask you this question. You, 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 I, I agree with you, but I sort of feel like it happens on both sides. Like I feel both sides call each other out. There's no communication in the middle. I mean, what, no, you're, I think that's what you're saying too. sounds like, um, you know, Anne Rand's, you know, main characters in 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 her her books. But uh, uh, it's not just an alt left or alt right thing. I think both sides are tyrannical. Well, the Ayn Rand thing's a good comparison because the problem with Ayn Rand is there's two problems, is that all her good people are the same person. There's no diversity among them. All the bad people are the same people and all the good is in the good people and all the bad is in the bad people. Well, that isn't how life works. Like there's, and that's the difference between Atlas Shrugged and Crime and Punishment. Yeah. You know, I mean, I liked Atlas Shrugged. They're fun to read. They're romances. They're adventure romances. They're fun to read. And she's got a point. Like she was she was a critic of a collectivist society. Fine. She had she had her reasons, man. She escaped her family escaped from the Soviet Union. But the problem with Ayn Rand is that um she doesn't portray the battle as a battle within. She portrays it as a battle between competing sets of ideologies and that that's just not accurate. Like it's it's accurate, but it's insufficiently accurate. I guess though, in, in um, Atlas Shrugged, there's the almost indoctrination of the main character. I forgot the woman's name. Uh, where she she's competent from the beginning. I I feel actually her books are books about because I don't have the the political understanding of her background. I sort of feel her books are about competence, mm. and there's a competent group of people and an incompetent group of people. Yeah, and then there's the people who are mostly competent. And they get indoctrinated into full competence. And I think that's another interpretation of her books. And I agree with- Well, I would say that's the positive part of her books mm-hmm. is that is the distinction between competent and incompetent. Which doesn't necessarily have to be all left or all right. Again, it gets back to your, what I appreciate in, in your book, 12 Rules for, for Life, kind of having some, like you said about your controversial stance earlier, you had thought about something for years and you thought you really felt decades, deeply, even. decades. Mm. So you have, so you you built up this core truth inside of you that you were able to express. And so if somebody didn't have the same level of coming from the core that you had, it wasn't going to 
affect you. Um, now you might not be right. You could be, for instance, totally wrong. Maybe your court, maybe you had to do a century of thinking <laughs> for all you know. But um, you know at least that you're where you're coming from. And I think a lot of times people don't know where they're coming from. Well, that's also why they should start small, because people know where they're coming from about some things. Right. You know, they know when, where they're coming from about some things. So I would say you should you should start from a place where you know where you are. You know, and you can tell, like if someone's if someone's continually bullying you and there's something that has to be said, you know what you have to say. You might not be able to say it, but then you have to figure out, okay, well, I have to put myself in a position where I can say this. And it's a problem. You know the problem. You know the solution. That doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it obvious. It doesn't make it without risk. None of those things. These are real problems. It's like what I say about dragons, you know, the dragon's a mythological figure. So, well, go out and confront the dragon. It's like, yeah, go out there and confront the dragon. Yeah, wait a minute, though. It can eat you. It's no joke. You know, I've been, I've had many people in my clinical practice, in my life in general, who've been swallowed by the dragon. It's not something I would recommend. It's not good. Okay, so, so these are real problems. They're it, not, it, they, they can't be solved just with heroic hand waving. But, but, but I feel the alternative. So, so, so you, let's say eating, you know, going out and fighting the dragon is the metaphorical equivalent of, you know, I'm unhappy in my job for the past 15 yep. years. I'm just going to quit and yep. do my dream. Yeah, and no, that's a bad idea. That, yeah, that's the other extreme. <laughs> that's and, a really bad idea. And, and I think people don't know how to take the small steps along the way. Like, uh, I think that's yeah, really the hard part. Yeah, they need people to talk to too. And that's the big problem. Lots of people have no one to listen to them. You know, right, well, that, they'll say, well, quit whining about your job or why don't you do something about it? It's like, no, someone comes to me and says, I'm unhappy with my job. It's like, okay, well, let's see if we can do something about that. It's like, um, how long have you had your job? Year. Um, it's the first job I've had in five years. I've only had it for a year. And you're 30, let's say. It's like, no, you don't get to quit that job because you've only had it for a year. You've got no credibility, man. Like you quit this job, you're not going to get another job. No one's going to employ you. You're stuck for a year, at least. You got to be in that job long enough so you've got some credibility. So we'll say, look, we'll make a five-year plan. We'll make a five-year plan. And we'll get you in a way better position in three to five years. So, but first of all, you got to work hard at this job and you got to gain some credibility because otherwise you're not going anywhere. Now, if you can come up with a better solution than that, no problem. But for now, that's what it looks like for me. Okay, so what do we have to do? Well, do you have your resume put together? No, I haven't updated it for like three years. It's like, well, go update it. Well, I don't want to. It's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it's a pain to update your resume. Go home and open it. Just look at it. That's your job for this week. Go home and open your resume. Don't even write it. Can you open it? Yeah, I think I could do that. Okay, go open it. Come back a week later. How was that? Well, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. It's like, yeah, right. Okay, so fix it a bit. Like do a do a do the next draft. Assume you're going to have to draft it eight times. Do the next draft. Bring it to me. We'll go over it. They bring it in. We go over it. They start putting the resume together. Then we start looking for holes. We start looking for educational opportunities. It's like, well, we got to put your resume together. Now you got to figure out how to go to have an interview. Are you any good at it? No. Nope. Well, we're going to have to practice that. It's like, what have you got to offer? Well, I don't know. Well, that's not a very good story. But that's a really great answer. I don't know what I have to offer. Because it's not that, a very good story. It's not a good yeah. story, but it's a great nope. answer because yep. many people don't know the answer to that question. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, well, and I think they don't know how to even find, take small steps to find out what, yep. either what they're good at or what they want to do. Yeah. Well, with some people, you have to start much smaller than that too. It's like, um, I would say to someone like that is, 
if you don't know what you should do, then start by figuring out what you should stop doing. Mm. And this, I've never seen anyone who can't do this. Okay, watch yourself for a week. Notice when there's something that you know you could set right, that you would set right. Just notice that. Something bugs you that you could fix, that you would fix. Bring back a list of four things that like, Let's start with your room. There's something about your room that isn't as good as it could be. So go home and look at your room and see what bugs you. And they come back and say, well, you know, there's this pile of clothes in my closet that I haven't looked at, I haven't done anything with for six months, you know? Because sometimes people are in terrible chaos, right? They're, right? Things are just, yeah, they have piles of laundry in their room that haven't been done for like two years. It's like, well, sort through one pile this week. Just sort through it, that's all. Don't do any more than that. That's good enough. Could you do that? Yeah. Okay, go do that. See what happens. Come back and tell me. So they go home, sort through it, and they think, oh, well, you know, that wasn't so bad. So, I so, could do that. But I feel like, okay, the pile of clothes, that's, yeah. that's, that's an easy one, right? They, what's wrong with the room? Oh, there's a pile of dirty clothes. Yeah. That's clearly something wrong. Yeah. Sometimes it's more nuanced, I feel. Like, oh, my room is clean. I don't really know what's going, what's going wrong. Sometimes this has happened to me. I don't really know what's going wrong. Or I'll rationalize okay. very deeply what's going yeah. wrong. Well, then I would say guess. Tell yeah. me a bunch of bad theories about what might be going wrong. Tell me 10 of them. We'll lay them out on tables like, like cards. Well, I can, let's say I can tell you what's going wrong, but I have a rationalization for it. Tell me the rationalizations too. Okay. And then let's analyze them. Because they probably have a kernel of truth. But let's let okay. So, so here's so ten I, things that I, might be I don't going like wrong. My here's job. my pile of rationalizations. Yeah, I don't like my 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 house. The air conditioning doesn't work, but I don't have the money to hire a plumber or air conditioner guy or whatever to fix it. Yeah, well, some look. Sometimes you <laughs> sometimes you find people who are so trapped in a chaotic circumstance that they have nine reasons like that. You know, my air conditioner doesn't work, and I don't have the money to. Uh, to pay for it, and I don't have the education to get the job, and like there's ten things that are stopping it, standing right. in the way. And that happens in romance, that happens in business, sure, happens sure. in career well, choices, so, well, well, and spirituality. Look, sometimes too, you find people who are so stuck you can't help them out. Like it, it has happened to me rarely, but it's happened. So like that's the dragon issue. It's like sometimes you're just in the belly, and that's that. You're done. That's horrible. You're done. That's yeah. rare, but it happens. You think that's so, rare? Yeah, I, th I think it's rare. I think when you I think were in the middle, that you can't get out of it. When you were in the middle of, let's say, your deepest depression, yeah. I know. Look, I've experienced great depression in the past. Uh, you have. Uh, when you were at the bottom of that, did you feel like there was nothing you could do to help? You would see people walking around smiling, and you wouldn't even be able to understand. Well, deep how did these deep, people deep, smile with deep depression? That's virtually the definition of that. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I'm also not saying that people don't find themselves in situations that they can't fix. That happens, you know, like I had clients who developed a terminal illness while they were working with me. It's like they have pancreatic cancer. It's like, well, then then what do you do? You try to make it no more hellish than it has to be. That's what you've got. And, and that's actually a lot more than nothing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I had a real object lesson in this with my father-in-law, Dale Roberts. He, his wife, my mother-in-law, developed frontotemporal dementia when she was about 55. And, and that's, you know, neurolog degenerative neurological diseases, they're pretty much up there with the worst things that, that can happen to you. There's lots of terrible things that can happen to you, but those are bad. And so she lost her language function over time, took about 10 years. She couldn't, couldn't talk by the end of that. And 
eventually she got to the point where she couldn't get up out of the chair by herself and then he had to put her in a home but i watched him and he was kind of a man about town he was kind of a drinker a partier real extroverted guy um not the sort of person at all that you would think of as as naturally gravitating towards a nursing role jesus man he was a trooper he took care of her like you wouldn't believe it was just phenomenal and if if he would talk to us sometimes about what was going on with with my wife's mother and we would offer suggestions like we told him to get an electronic uh uh, display that she he could put on the fridge that would tell her over and over where he went if he stepped out or what time it was and that sort of thing and had alarms put in the house and all sorts of things and he would be on that right away like if you could offer him a solution that was going to make it less awful he would implement that right now and you know he took a situation that was pretty damn brutal and he made it he made it at least bearable and but there was more than that more than that happened because of it you know because he turned out to be such a attentive caregiver for his wife, his kids liked him more. You know, it showed a side of him that no one had seen it, so his kids got closer to him. And so what he did brought the family together, and it brought it more together, brought it more together. Like, it, 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 my wife straightened, there was a bunch of reasons why she straightened out her relationship with her father completely, but that was definitely one of them. And then I was there when she, when she died, the week she died. You know, and my wife is... She worked, volunteered in palliative care ward. She's a tough cookie and, and has been through a lot of rough things. And her sister works as a palliative care nurse and the other one was a pharmacist. And um, they came together at their mother's deathbed and they were really helpful. Like when she was thirsty, they put water on her lips and they, you know, cool her brow. And they weren't fighting over her remains in the, in the death room. They were together and it made it, well, and the whole family became closer together. Now she died, say, it must be six or seven years ago, and she's gone, and there's a big hole there as a consequence of that, but everybody's closer, and so there were benefits to be had. Well, I think, I think, I mean, often when a death in the family occurs, also the opposite happens because everyone's so conflicted internally but can't express it. Yeah. They all end up fighting, and then they're fighting over That's the right. will, and they're fighting about That's the right. funeral. And then and you turn tragedy into hell. Yeah. And tragedy is one thing, but hell is something else. Yeah, and I think I think I mean, it's great we're talking about it and it's a great people are listening, but I think when people are in the middle of it, just like well, I'm going to suggest when you were in the middle of your depression, I don't know what you were experiencing, but sometimes it's hard to know then that it's even happening. That it's hard to know when you're visiting through hell that this is what hell looks like. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say there's a difference between depression and hell, even though depression can be really bad, like really bad, like unbelievably bad. Um, hell is fighting with your siblings over the will at the deathbed of your mother. That's hell. Depression is just misery. <laughs> <laughs> right, and hell is the, the, when, when, when a thousand people write you, uh, let's say hate mail over something you say, and one or two of them you know, happen to hit the right button that, yep. that affects you. That, yep. that feels like hell to me as well. Um, because then you question your your core beliefs. The core is shaken a little bit. Yeah, and and well, that's especially hell if if they if it hits you somewhere that where you have violated your integrity. Right? Yeah, because if you think well, well what if you rationalize violating your integrity? Like for instance, let's say take on the transgender thing. You, you, yeah. had, a, you had a bigger picture, which is that um, my speech, my free speech, shouldn't be limited, uh, and free speech in general leads to authoritarian, uh, you know, an authoritarian societies and yeah. so on. But let's say someone was actually offended 
by you not doing this. And so you have to balance that a little bit that you have this bigger, broader vision, but also there might be individuals who are really hurt. Now your point might be, it's okay. Being- oh, I would balance it. I mean, I, in my clinical practice, I've talked to every sort of person you can possibly imagine about every sort of thing, you know, and if I had a transgender client, I've had plenty of clients who had problems that were just as complex socially as, as being transgendered. We deal with that on an individual level, no problem. I'd, I'd have no problem dealing with it on an individual level. It was when it was mandated by law that I had a problem with. It's like, right, and so, but I bet you a lot of the people who were attacking you weren't as smart as you and so were personally offended. Or or they just went on the attack because they were angry, small people yeah. and you or became- no, Or not, or they were hurt or they were, or no, they I'm, were I'm confused. I'm only about 90% were just angry people and you became the object of their rage. Yeah, well, there moment. was definitely some of that. There was no doubt there was some of that. And yeah, so, yeah. and so, and so that's difficult to, like you say, fighting the dragon. You know, you could have also just not been controversial and not had all that hate directed towards you. So, what, what drives you to, like, do you? Oh, well, I read the policies. Like, I read the, I, well, what, there was a bunch of, a bunch of proximal reasons that I made my initial video. Um, one was that I had had three clinical clients in the last two years and the two years before that who had been bullied into a state of poor mental health by social justice warriors at their workplace. One uh-huh. in a bank, one in an educational institution, and one working as a counselor. Uh, and I thought, three is a lot. Like, that's a lot. So so by, by them standing up for their beliefs against some societal yeah. rules... They were bullied to the point where they were depressed or anxious or suicidal or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And and they were very different people. I think I, I think I need to be in your clinical practice. I think uh, I have to talk to you after the podcast. Yeah, so that was rough, but I noticed that. And then um, one of them in particular was, and then um, I'd been talking about the rise of political correctness with a colleague of mine who's a pretty leftist guy, um, but a reasonable guy. Um, and he said, well, you know, this is all very bad, but it's no wonder people don't speak out about it because... They feel that the price they would pay personally compared to the advantage that would be gained socially is disproportionate. Uh, and, and, and when are they right? Well, they're almost always right. But except, except that it depends on your span of apprehension because I know what happens if you don't say what you believe to be the truth. And your soul you corrupts. Know. I see, okay. And that's not good because that's what you've got. Like in the final analysis, like what my what my stepfather or my my father-in-law had to deal with his wife's dementia was his character that's what he had so his character that he knows as a person he as a, a persona of he's a person in love and this is what a person in love does when the people they care for are hurting well that and all the things that he had practiced doing like the fact that he was able to step up to the plate when it was necessary meant that he had made a lot of really good decisions and hadn't made a lot of really bad decisions like he wasn't resentful. He didn't say, oh my God, why? I mean, I'm sure he did from time to time because everyone would. Like, why is this happening to me? Isn't this so unfair? Isn't the whole world corrupt? He didn't rage around. He didn't immediately put her in a home. He only put her in a home when he actually could not take care of her anymore. At some point, you have to stop because there's no point in you dying along with the person. It's just not helpful, right? It's, it's hard on everyone. It's yeah, worse. so where, when's the line? Well, he he put her in a home when he couldn't lift her out of a chair anymore. When's the line on um, like, like this happens in family relationships all yep. the time, where your parents, siblings, whatever, are insufferable. They're rude to you. They're cruel to you. When's the line when family is no longer worth putting up with? 
Well, you know, there's a line in the New Testament that deals with such things. Don't cast pearls before swine. And what it means is that if you're offering and no one is receiving, then leave. And that's right. It's right. It's harsh. There's a rule in my, in my book. It's uh, make friends with the people who want the best for you. I, it's I about think, exactly that. It's I like when, actually, when to walk away. You know what? I think actually, I mean, all the rules in your book are important. And I think that actually is one of the most important because I think, isn't it a tenet of, you know, positive psychology, for instance, you know, of, of a tenet of well-being, the number one is community. And what's community? It's not just hanging out with anybody. It's hanging out with the people who want the best for you and yeah. you want the best for them. So I think that's, it's almost like primal. There are some things that are primal, like the tr we always, it's an evolutionary point of view. And you talk so much about, I love how in this book you interweave evolution and the Bible actually, and, and other historical texts that have withstood the test of time because somehow they're, they're encoded in our DNA. The fact that they've survived for 3000 years for a reason. So, uh, uh, you know, the tribe and in our modern society is our friends and our community because we get to choose our tribe to some extent. This is, this is so important. I think this is primal. I think finding your core integrity if you can or even taking small steps like taking a list and taking stock of yourself yeah i think this is this is primal for for well-being um what else what else i mean obviously you have 12 rules here and i think actually it's also primal for people to come up with their 12 rules because you even sort of suggest that these are your 12 rules it's not necessarily everybody's 12 rules so what yeah and, and there, there it could be a different 12 yeah although i like your 12 rules yeah. and and you have funny uh uh, names on on some of them, but I think like telling the truth again, getting to your 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 core integrity. Be precise in your speech. Maybe you could describe a little bit what you. Oh, mean. Well, here's a good one. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say you're arguing with your wife. Okay, ask her what she wants. Mm. Like, and so here's that question: We're arguing. There's something I could do that would give you what you want. What is it? And maybe she'll say, "Well, if you really loved me, you'd know." It's like, sorry. I'm stupid, just like you. I hardly know what I want. How the hell am I going to figure out what you want? And even if I should know, it's going to take me a long time to learn. So you're going to have to clue me in because I'm I'm clueless. What if she doesn't know the answer because she's just as clueless as you? Then we have to then we have to figure out what the answer is. It's like we're having an argument. You want something? We better well figure at least what are your conditions of satisfaction. We have a rule in our house. You know, a couple of them. One is, um, if you're complaining, announce your rules of satisfaction. It's not. So if you if you don't like something I'm doing, you have to tell me what it is that I could do that would work so that you would shut up and go away. So That's let's say let's say let's say she responded, I want you to make double the money you're making. Okay, okay, sure. So 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 usually it isn't it doesn't happen that dramatically. She might say, We don't have enough money. Because it wouldn't be out, it wouldn't be that thought through. We don't have enough money. It's like, okay, well, we'll have to decompose that then. It's like, money for what? And how much are we lacking? And what are we going to do about it? So, so what you're saying is you want to sit down and have a serious conversation about money and solve this problem. It's like, okay, I can do that. I can sit down for half an hour and we can start having that conversation. I mean, usually when people are fighting, especially when they're like just sort of pecking at each other, the conditions for satisfaction are more specific than that. But that's really useful. It's like, what do you want? And the other rule is, I like this rule, is like, if I give you what you want, you have to shut up and quit bothering me. Because, you know, the other thing that often happens is someone will be arguing with you and you'll admit they're right and you'll offer them what they want and then they'll keep arguing with you. 
You know, they want to keep hammering you. It's like, no, if if you win, you have to stop beating me up. But and and I I agree with this in all these specific situations. Yeah. But I can always think of counter situations. Like, what if she doesn't like the fact that you talked to Sally too much at the party last night? Oh, that'd and- probably take three months to have that conversation. <laughs> oh yeah, because there's lots to there's lot to sort out there. It's like, okay, what are so fine? You don't like how I talked to Sally at the party last night. All right, so you want us to stop going to parties? No, I I don't think that's it. I want you to behave differently. Okay. What are the rules? No flirting. Is that the rule? Ever? No flirting. That's a rule you want to apply to you too? Do you want to never flirt with anyone again in the rest of your life? It's like, well, no, there's still some playfulness. It's okay, let's figure out what the hell are the limits. So this is the this is the be precise in your speech, which is slightly different than honesty. The honesty yeah. involves that initial answer of what is what is bothering me because often people won't be honest about that either but let's say well, they, they're honest yeah, about they that they have to flail around for a long time before they can even figure out what they're upset about hmm. yeah it's hard oh yeah the precision in speech is you can't hit a target unless you aim for it so you want to be precise what do you want exactly what do you want so if i'm working with a client for example and maybe they're making forty thousand dollars a year it's not enough money it's like okay how much money do you want to make exactly I want to make $120,000. Okay, how long? How long are you going to give yourself to make that? It's like, well, a year. It's like, well, it's possible. You're going to have to like turn yourself inside and out, inside out to manage that. How about four years? You're going to make $120,000. So, okay, well, now we've got a name. Let's see if we can put together a plan. But I feel, I feel problems are more complex than that. Like, let's say, let's say that person in that example is yeah. married. Okay, but I, if I don't make it within a year... I'm going to lose my house and then I'm afraid my wife's going to leave oh, me. Oh, okay. Well, then what you do in a situation like that is you go through the catastrophe. It's like, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Lay it out. I'm going what to lose gonna my do? house. My wife's going to leave me. Okay. And okay. I'm going to live in a, in a one-room place and no one's ever going to like me again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably going a bit too far, but what I would well, start with there is, <laughs> well, I would start there with, okay, well, let's walk through what happens if you lose your house. What are you going to do? Because you need to plan. Look, sometimes people do come and see me, let's say, or are on the ragged edge of disaster, right? And so there's just no, there's no fixes immediately. There's no quick fixes. Then what I do is say, okay, well, <laughs> you can see the tidal wave coming. In a minute, it's going to be on you. How the hell are you going to swim? That's what we have to figure out. I think that I think that's that's a good point. That I think everybody wants the quick fix because obviously that will well, yeah, make the pain subside immediately. Yeah, but. But understanding that there's no quick fix, being honest about it, and coming up with some small incremental solution that makes you feel a little better mm-hmm. can also subside well, or, or the or cortisol. That makes, or that actually makes it better. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and lots, lots of times, too, you're, you're in a situation Leonard Cohen described. Uh, there's no decent place to stand in a massacre. Sometimes people come and say, look, I'm screwed, and I can either do this awful thing or this awful thing or this awful thing, and I can't see an alternative. It's like... I go through it with him. It's like, yeah, you're screwed. You've got three bad choices. There's no other choices. No matter what you do, you're in trouble. So fine. So let's go through the choices, the poison. Let's figure out what we can, what structures we can put in place to, to make it less horrible. You know, maybe you're going to court because you molested your son or some goddamn thing. Like you're screwed. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to make this the least amount of awful possible for everyone. Well, it's still going to be awful. There's no way out of this. It's it's a terrible conundrum. But but you can still... Huh, I learned a while back why hell is a bottomless pit. And it's because no matter how bad it is, there's some stupid goddamn thing you can do to make it worse. And that's for sure. 
So, you know, you say, well, I'm in hell. It's like, okay, fair enough. Like, let's see if we can stop it from getting worse. It's interesting because I, I feel like, for instance, when I'm most anxious about something, the absolute, the correct thing to do is twofold. One is realize that my brain is operating out of uh, some anxiety that's being triggered as yeah. opposed to, let's say, out of my core yeah. truth yeah. and then doing nothing. Because mm-hmm. as long as my brain is not operating from my heart but operating out of some wherever anxiety is produced in the brain, then I'm not going to make a good action. Yeah, well, that sure, that happens to people too. And that that would be, I would say, more characteristic of people who are high in trait neuroticism. So they have a tendency. Hiding. High in trait neuroticism. Mm. So what some, does that mean? Well, you're, the degree to which you feel, imagine that your body is always trying to respond to uncertainty and threat, and there's plenty of it. And some people respond to uncertainty, and a unit of uncertainty and threat with a small amount of physical preparation. Because if something uncertain happens, you need to do something. Well, what? Well, you don't know. It's uncertain. So you prepare to do everything. Well, imagine that it's a little bit of uncertainty and you just massively prepare for a catastrophe. Well, you might be right. It might be a catastrophe. Yeah, like you, let's say you feel a little chest pain. You might yeah, think, yeah. oh, God, I have serious heart disease. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like, why not freak out completely and immediately rush to the hospital? It's like, yeah, yeah, why not? Well, it's an unsolvable problem um, because sometimes you're right when you catastrophize. And sometimes, and some people are wired to catastrophize more than others. So that's pure genetics does that. So, well, if you happen to be in that category, then that, that's, that requires a different clinical approach. That means that you wouldn't be treated so much for the problems that you have. You'd be treated for the excess anxiety that you're experiencing. And there's lots of ways that that can be dealt with. Exercise helps. The one thing I always recommend to people who are excessively anxious is, um, on this first thing I'd ask you is, um, what do you eat for breakfast? Mm. So what do you eat for breakfast? Uh, a cookie. Okay. <laughs> so I can tell you this. You'll cut your anxiety 50% if you change the way you eat breakfast. So eat a protein and fat-heavy breakfast and eat twice as much as you want and do it every day. And you'll find, you will not believe how much difference that will make to you. Is that really true? Oh, absolutely. And, and a cookie is the worst thing you could possibly eat for breakfast. Mm. So partly because, so let's say you have a hyperreactive nervous system. It sounds very probable given the sorts of things that you've said today. So you, you react with a lot of preparation to rather small signs of threat and uncertainty. Okay, so you sleep, you wake up, you stress yourself, your body hyperproduces insulin, takes all the sugar out of your blood, and then you're in a hypoglycemic crisis. You won't fix that till you sleep again. So what you need to do is you need to get up in the morning. I would also recommend get up at the same time every morning. You can go to sleep whenever you want. Get up at the same time. Pick a time. I don't care when it is. Pick a time, 10 o'clock, 8 o'clock, whatever. So you, you wrote this in the book, and I questioned, yep. you know, it's different from, let's say, uh, Arianna Huffington's book on sleep, where she recommends eight hours. As a, I mean... Oh, eight hours would be good, but, but like I'm and, doing minimal interventions here. Okay, okay. It's like, you're not going to get your whole life together. Yeah. We're not going to aim at that. If you want to do two things that will really change your levels of negative emotion, it's like, first of all, get up at the same time, because you should stabilize your circadian rhythms. Because if you're more emotional and more prone to to psychological pain and, and anxiety than a typical person would be. You don't want to, you might have unstable circadian rhythms. And the best way to stabilize them is to get up the same time every day. That would be a help. And then I would say, before you do anything, eat. Don't look at your email. Don't look at your phone, nothing. Get up, eat. So I'm not hungry in the morning. It's like, who talked? This isn't enjoyment. I don't care if it tastes like cardboard. That has 
Enjoyment will come two years from now when you start to become accustomed to eating breakfast. For now, and just try it for a month. Because then you'll know. I know what'll happen. You'll be way less anxious. And what'll happen is you'll notice that things don't bug you as much. You know, something will happen and you'll think, huh, I'm not reacting to that as much as I usually do. And then you'll also notice, huh, I reacted to that, but I recovered faster. That's mm. what'll happen. And I, I, I bet that if you did that for a month, you'd find your anxiety levels drop 50%. Mm. And then that might put you back in a more normal range. Maybe not. Maybe you'd still be higher anxiety than normal. And then there's other things that could be done. So, but that, you just, I've had people, it, it's so funny. People will come and they're just anxious and, and, and paralyzed, you know. I says, well, I think that's a common. Breakfast? No. It's like, well, you're starving. Okay, so let's fix that first. Well, that won't work. It's like, let's try it for a month. I think I think there's a disconnect, like somehow in our society, there's a disconnect between food and the and the concept that food is fuel that runs the body mm. and the brain. I mean, 25% of our calories a day is burned by the brain. Oh, so, yeah, especially if you're stressed. Yeah, so we need food as fuel, and I don't know if people really think of it that way. Yeah, and you don't want to use carbohydrates. You want to use fat and protein. So that's the other thing. Protein, fat heavy. Stay away from the sugar. Don't eat any carbohydrates in the morning. Mm. Eat bacon and eggs. Eat cheese, eat peanut butter. Don't eat, don't eat bread. Don't eat cake. Don't eat cookies. So, so let me ask you. So, you've and this is this. I've is, had clients. I said, well, I won't cook breakfast. It's like, okay, that's fine. Go, go to the bloody pharmacy and get a case of Insure, which is what you drink if you're diabetic. Drink two Insure when you wake up in the morning. It's like that only take ten seconds. It's, it's, it's not a full meal, but it's a hell of a lot better than nothing. Start with that. Whatever will do it, man. Make a make a milkshake with with peanut butter and milk, and drink that. But try it. It'll, it'll believe me. You you won't believe how much difference it makes to you. So so, um, and this this veers slightly away from what we were just talking about. Although I'm definitely going to follow all that advice. How does someone someone's listening to this and they're thinking, man, this guy's so smart. I'm going to read his stuff. I'm going to watch his videos. You you have people coming up to you in the street saying, oh, you changed my life. What did you do to, to do this? That's a pretty good life well, you Well, I'm made. a clinical psychologist. Right, and a professor, and yeah. an author. Yeah, but the clinical psychologist part really matters in this. is like I've read the great clinicians of the 20th century. But not right? only that, you've done serious studies of the Bible. You've yeah. mentioned crime and punishment and Ayn Rand books, Brothers Karma, Karamazov. Uh, you know, there's more than just getting a PhD in psychology. You're also a, a, a huge reader, um, you know, and I think that's great because that allows you almost to absorb the lives of others in just mm -hmm. a book as opposed yeah. to living their lives. Yes, right. And so there's lots of internal work you've done, but then you also put yourself out there. You do these YouTube videos, you you go on these podcasts. Like it seems like there's a, a method to the madness a little bit. Like you want to be out there. You want well. The method is the method. Reason for the method is outlined in the first book I wrote and the second book. It's like, well, life is brutal and and and. And there's evil. Fix it. Fix it. And so you got nothing better to do, man. So do what, it. What are you? What are you fixing? I'm fixing. Well, why does it make you I'm, happy I'm when the guy in London people. comes up to you? Because I know what the alternative is. What's the alternative? Hell. Is is some someone not coming up to you saying you're relevant? Is that hell? No, no. That's just not as good as it could be. Auschwitz. That's hell. Huh. The Gulag. That's hell. Yeah, we, we've already been there. It's like, we don't need to go there again. 
as far as I'm concerned. And you feel also- That was bad enough. For me, that was, Solzhenitsyn thought, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author, he thought the most important thing that happened in the 20th century was the Nuremberg trials. And he thought that, and I think he was right. The reason for that is he thought that, well, you know, Nietzsche announced God was dead and so, so much for transcendent good. It's like, okay, so much for transcendent good. It was a pipe dream anyways. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, now there's no up. That's a big problem because what the hell are you going to aim at? If you've got nothing to aim at, your life has no meaning. So it's actually a big problem. Okay, so we got rid of transcendent good. Well, so then we have what happened in Nazi Germany. We replaced it with transcendent evil. It's just as good. It's like, if you know that something is absolutely unspeakable, well, then you know that there's, there's, there's evil. As soon as you know there's evil, you know there's good. It's the opposite of that. That's what I've been searching for. So there's this story that, 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 that happened in Auschwitz, the camp guard. And this is, I spent a lot of time trying to understand this. So, you know, you, you get taken to Auschwitz, you're in a bloody train car, you're packed in there with a bunch of other people, you're all starving to death. It's so cold in the train car that all the people on the outside freeze to death. So they're just solid corpses by the time you get to Auschwitz. All the little kids have uh, perished, all the old people have perished. Everyone's half starved. You're taken away from your family. You're not even around people that speak your language. Then you're dumped into this city-sized compound. You're just screwed. Do you think that'd be good enough for your enemies? But that's not good enough. So then the guard comes up and maybe you're looking still like, you know, you, you're not dead yet, you know? And so there's still some misery to be extracted from you. And so the job that's put forward for you is the, here's a hundred pound wet sack of wet salt. It's like, how about you carry that to the other side of the compound? That's a city, right? It's not like 200 yards. It's like a mile. Carry it to the other side of the yard. When you're done, carry it back. Mm. It's like, okay. So my question is, who would do that to someone else? That's the first question. And the second question is, what can be done so that that doesn't happen again? Yeah, well, so that's what motivates me. Is the first is, that's evil. That, that's the, the infliction on, of suffering for the point of the suffering. That's the thing about, that people don't understand about the Nazis. That's art. It's art of pain. And the Nazis were unbelievably good at that. And you don't understand that at all unless you know that that's about you. Not as victim either, although also about victim. It's like, you're the guy who did that. You're the guy who did that. So you so, should so, bloody well fix it. So, 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 if you don't want it to happen again. Right, so, so basically, and this gets back to all, all of what you've been saying, we've been talking about, it gets back to the individual deciding what is a core value for them, taking stock of themselves oh. so that they know when they veer from that, even in a small way, that that can add up across various does dimensions, add does add up. Inevitably To, to either up. evil or depression or a wasted life yep. or a wasted marriage or disappointment yep. or, or, or whatever. Or even shining less light in the world. It's hmm. like, you know, one of the reasons that young guys, I think, but young women too, have been um, happy with what I've been talking about online. And, you know, it isn't that people come up and say that I've saved them, let's say. They say that they've been watching my videos and the videos have helped them. And I don't want to take responsibility for the content of the videos. You know, like I've read all these clinicians. I, I know what they meant and I'm synthesizing it and offering. It's not like I'm generating all this information, you know, out of nothing. I'm not at all. I'm, I'm putting forward the wisdom that I've found. Um, but um, I tell people, look, you, there's a lot of darkness and you have some light. And if you don't reveal all the light that is within you, then the darkness wins. 
And so you so you're so you feel it's kind of a side effect then these people coming up to to you you enjoy it but the real the real thing is like you have I think th- it's amazing. I don't know if I enjoy it. It's too intense. No, no. You know what I mean? It's- I I agree and I get it, you know, to some extent because of these podcasts. Yeah. I'm sure I'll get it from this podcast. Um and then I get worried, you know, it's I remember a conversation between Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer where uh Eckhart Tolle basically is talking about awards and bad things and the difference. Yep. And he said both are hot potatoes. Right. You know, both you can't get attached to either. And it's very hard because I want people to come up to me and say, hey, I, I love it when people come up to me and say, hey, I enjoyed that podcast yeah. you did with Jordan That's Peterson. That's good. That's a good thing. But I worry I get uh, addicted to being relevant as yeah. opposed to having that core integrity. Like this, the real reason I did this is because I enjoy talking to Jordan Peterson and yeah. I'm learning from. Yeah, well, you should podcast. be worried about that. So, you should be worried about that. It's a big worry. Right, but, yeah. but but as you just said, though, hey, it's fantastic when it, when it happens. So it's right. easy to get addicted to that feeling of, of fantasticness. Yeah, well, it's easy to, to, to take too much personal responsibility for that in some sense or to attribute it to yourself too personally. Which There's I never a, do, which I always make sure I remind myself and I say to them, um, you did it. Yeah, well, that's, that's, and that, well, that's the thing, too, is that, that it's a funny... It's a funny thing to tell people. It's like, get your act together and say, well, that really helped. It's like, no, what really helped is you decided to get your act together. It's like, I'm happy to be the medium whereby that message was transmitted. Wonderful, hooray. But like, I feel, I don't feel a sense of accomplishment when someone comes and tells me about the fact that they put their life together. I think, what I think instead is, wow, isn't it great that they decided to put their life together? And and I really do think that because I actually do believe that, because I thought, you know, there's in the Holocaust Museum in Washington and in and in, in Berlin. I think they both have the same motto. Maybe it's only the one in Washington. Um, never forget. It's like okay, fine. Forget what? What's the lesson of the Nazi of Nazi Germany? That there shouldn't be Nazis. It's like okay, well, those Nazis shouldn't have done that. It's but, like that's not the lesson. The but, lesson is that we were the Nazis. That and 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 that's fascinating because I haven't heard it quite in that way before. That it starts with the individual. And I think, um, I mean, look, the book is twelve rules for life. But I think there's there's really important. But you you slice up into different ways, I guess. Several, a few important things. One is core honesty, being able to speak precisely and coming from this core honest part where you've really thought and taken stock and even written down what your beliefs are, who you are, what your values are, and and so on. And then I think there's another core philosophy, which is, hey, don't hang out with the Nazis or the people who are trying to control you or the people who are trying to say no to you in in whatever way, in, in a negative way, in a way that you view as negative. Hang out with yeah. There's a there's an easy way of summing that up: is you should hang around with the people who who want the best for the best in you. And 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 I think and I think a, a third thing is s- small steps or even bad steps. Are okay. Mm-hmm. So, so personal, small bad steps are good. Per, personal improvement <laughs> doesn't mean run next year's marathon. It means run down the block if you've never run before. Mm. Like for, personal improvement can happen in many, in many. Yeah, dimensions. the trajectory. Trajectory is everything. Right, and so, so, and I think, and the book is fantastic because I think you attack these different areas from the the twelve rules, but then also even within each chapter, there's. Uh, stories that you've experienced, stories from the Bible, stories from other books, stories from 
patients' experiences, stories from history. I mean, it's just fascinating to encapsulate all of these ideas of how to live uh, uh, a life filled with more contentment and well-being inside the context of developing these rules that are integral to to you personally. This is how no one can affect you because you're, these are your personal beliefies. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and again, I'm not taking, I'm not saying don't have 12, have three. I'm saying you attack these sort of fundamental concepts of, of community, honesty, slash freedom and improvement across these 12 rules and your story. And I think, I think this book is going to be a huge book. I also think people should write their own 12 rules. That's part of taking stock. Mm -hmm. My guess is as you were writing this, it was so much fun to have not to make your rules almost as simplistic as possible. Like take your pills, mm -hmm. you know, I guess that's the, one of the last things I'll ask. Why don't people, I, this is why I didn't understand in the chapter. Why don't people take their pills? Because so, they don't think that they're deserve, they deserve care. Mm -hmm. People look at themselves and they think, especially when they look at themselves personally and they think, Jesus. They'll tell I'm, other people to take their pills though. But they, they will, take, but they won't take their own pills. Well, it's because it's it's often easier for people to care for someone else than it is to care for themselves. You know, people have. See, the problem is you know yourself better than you know anyone else, so you know how deeply you are flawed, and you know where you've missed the mark, and you know, and you know where you where you've done bad things, or maybe even terrible things. You know all that. And you think, well, how the hell? Why would I take care of someone like that? Well. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. That's a good way to start. It's like, take care of yourself. You could be better than you are. You're not so good, you know? Fair enough. Just like everyone else. And, and I We've think- We've got some problems, but you know, you should still have some mercy for yourself and some care for yourself. And you could be more than who you are. And it's important that you are. It's really important that you are. I think that's a key thing is that you can be more than who you are. Yeah. And again, it's back to the individual. I, it's not like I'm going to be more than who I am by always subscribing to what society tells me to do. I have to first clean no, up my room. No, no, this is your own. This is your own rule. It's like according to your own standards, you could be more than you are. Good enough. It's like start, start, see well, what happens. You'll be so far along the road in five years, you won't believe it. Incremental improvements—they're deadly, and they, and they're lasting. That's the other thing. You know, you make a foundation, it's one brick at a time. I, 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 th I think it's really true. I, I, I resonate so much with this book because I think I'm an example of it where it's worked. So these 12 rules are, are valuable. They're, they're, I think, instrumental in having a life, a life of both well-being and meaning. And I think you've done such an amazing job of fashioning your own life according to these rules. You've stuck to your core integrity throughout as evidence in a million different cases in your videos and your controversies and your books and in the podcast I've heard you on. So 12 Rules for Life by, by Jordan Peterson, uh, I think will be a classic or should be a classic. Uh, thanks so much for for coming on the show. I hope, I hope was it a fun time? Did I was I a good interviewer? It was. You've just been interviewed fine. by the best, so it was just fine. Okay, compare. Yeah, like, well, we had a real conversation. Yeah, and, I, and I, 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 here's where my anxiety is. You've been interviewed several times by Joe Rogan. He did a great job with you. Okay, where where how can I how can I improve? Give me one uh, advice for improvement. And I think Joe Rogan's one of the best. I think that you were little more confidence would be good all right all right i'll yeah. I'll, I'll i mean i mean it. there's utility in self-criticism yeah but you know it can it can move too far and i think you're better at this than you think hmm. and so 
but I would also say that's associated with the anxiety that we talked about. And the best cure for that might just be to eat breakfast. I'm, I'm, I'm eating scrambled eggs tomorrow. Yeah, try it. And, and, eat more and than bacon. You eat Is that more? okay? With yeah. all the fat and bacon? Oh, it's better. Fat's good for you. It's not bad for you. That's Even not true. Even though it's true. like fried and grizzled yeah. and all Don't that? Don't worry about it. I love bacon. Thank good. you. Good. Eat all the bacon you want. <laughs> try, it for, try it for a month and see. You'll see. You'll, you'll be calmer. No doubt about it. All right. I will. Yeah. Okay. Th- thanks once again, Jordan Peterson. And if you like this podcast, please listen to it. Subscribe to it on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Write in, tweet us. What's your tweet? What's your Twitter? Um, at Jordan B. Peterson. At Jordan B. Peterson. Tell Jordan how much you like this. And thanks for listening. Thank you. No problem. No problem. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.